I think for me, when I think of this novel, I actually think of the Vietnam documentary that Ken Burns and Lynn Novak made a few years ago, because there was, you know, one thing I liked about this documentary is they actually talked to a lot of Vietnamese people on all sides. And there was this woman they spoke to who had been a Vietnamese soldier, a North Vietnamese soldier. And before she went to serve, her parents gave her a copy of A Farewell to Arms. And she brought that with her. She was building a road, the road through Cambodia that the North Vietnamese were using to get around the demilitarized zone and get supplies to the communists in South Vietnam. And every night, the road that she was building would get bombed by the Americans. And as she was sheltering from the American bombardment, she was reading A Farewell to Arms. And she felt like it made her feel connected to all the soldiers throughout history who had suffered in war. And I found that very powerful, especially because Hemingway, I think, attracts a lot of criticism for being a white male writer. So I was really, I found it very powerful that she was so moved by this work of literature because she connected to it as a soldier. Absolutely. And you hear it like, I think you're talking like the kind of, the universality of, of literature, the thing that we're always talking about is how it transcends all these other things, like this human basic stuff where it is deep, it is meaningful, it can choke you up, it can be so powerful. And obviously Hemingway is known for being able to create that through his literature, like making us feel this. And yeah, I'd actually forgotten about that scene in that documentary. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's in... It's just a great example of how powerful these books can be, these poet poetry can be, like these these things that are just a book sitting on a shelf. But then when you open it up, even if there's like bombardment over your head of like military bombs going off, it can bring you something. Some even if it's not comfort, well then some type of I don't know. I guess I don't want to say contentment because you're not content when you're in a situation like that. But yeah, that's fantastic. That's beautiful. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy. 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 Bored. your first kid yeah oh nice 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 do you know do you know the gender yet or it's a girl oh congrats congrats names and all that 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, fantastic. That's a lot of fun. I guess it's a lot of fun uh, <laughs> until you're you're lugging it around miserable and tired for a couple more months. Uh, well, I don't know. Pregnancy has been pretty hard. Really? I was, pretty, I was pretty naive about how hard pregnancy was. <laughs> the rite of passage. Like, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, as you can hear, listeners, this is another episode of Heavy Board. And today I'm joined by a guest, Valerie Lute. Valerie uh, is here to talk to us about Ernest Hemingway's probably most famous novel, A Farewell to Arms. And uh, Valerie reached out to me and I asked her if she would be willing to come on here and have a little book chat. And uh, we kind of got, what, what, did we meet on Twitter or YouTube? Yeah, I think I first saw a clip of the show on on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how I found out about it. Mm-hmm. And we started chatting a little bit. You sent me a very nice email, and uh, hopefully we can get a good discussion in here. I mean, I know we will. Not hopefully, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's great to meet you, Valerie. Thanks again for doing this. Uh, I just want to start with, you know, what's your history with this novel and Hemingway in general? You just give an overview, whatever you. So, I think for me, when I think of this novel. I actually think of the Vietnam documentary that Ken Burns and Lynn Novak made a few years ago, because there was, you know, one thing I liked about this documentary is they actually talked to a lot of Vietnamese people on all sides. And there was this woman they spoke to who had been a Vietnamese soldier, a North Vietnamese soldier. And before she went to serve, her parents gave her a copy of A Farewell to Arms. And she brought that with her. She was building a road, the road through Cambodia that the North Vietnamese were using to get around the demilitarized zone and get supplies to the communists in South Vietnam. And every night, the road that she was building would get bombed by the Americans. And as she was sheltering from the American bombardment, she was reading A Farewell to Arms. And she felt like it made her feel connected to all the soldiers throughout history who had suffered in war. And I found that very powerful, especially because Hemingway I think attracts a lot of criticism for being a white male writer. Um, So I was really, I found it very powerful that she was so moved by this work of literature because she connected to it as a soldier. Absolutely. And you hear it like, I think you're talking like the kind of the universality of, of literature, the thing that we're always talking about is how it transcends all these other things, like this human basic stuff where it is deep, it is meaningful, it can choke you up, it can be so powerful. And obviously Hemingway is known for pr- being able to create that through his literature, like making us feel this. And yeah, I'd actually forgotten about that scene in that documentary. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's mm-hmm. in... It's just a great example of how powerful 
these books can be, these poet poetry can be, like these these things that are just a book sitting on a shelf. But then when you open it up, even if there's like bombardment over your head of like military bombs going off, it can bring you something. Some even if it's not comfort, well then some type of I don't know. I guess I don't want to say contentment because you're not content when you're in a situation like that. But yeah, that's fantastic. That's beautiful. Um, for me, I had uh, the only experience I've had with Hemingway was was um, you know what they teach you in school and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, listeners that don't know, Valerie has uh, you have your MFA, right? You went through yeah. grad school, and then did you major in English in undergrad or literature? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, creative yeah. Writing. Oh, okay. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh so you've been a creative writing enthusiast and uh and dabbling in the dark arts of creative writing here for a while. Yeah, I I think I took my writing pretty seriously from a young age. However, I was originally majoring in someone something else and I changed my major and wasn't really planning on getting an MFA, but it was the it was when the economy was really bad, so I would recommend that. <laughs> but <laughs> like two thousand eight ish, nine ish. Um, it was twenty eleven. The job market was still pretty sluggish. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this too, like, and, and I want to get to criticisms of Hemingway, like you mentioned. It's just because there is kind of. And I think the reason we connected, Valerie, too, was that there was like, there is something right now. I call it kind of an atmosphere or a cloud around everything because everyone always wants you to point to like a specific person or a specific institution or a specific thing to be like, well, it's not real unless you can point to something like that. But I, I'm like, it's it's broader than that. It's like an atmosphere of basically just defacing or defaming the canon in some way just these great works of art being dismissed because of usually political pet projects that are trendy right now and then and then and valerie and i kind of found each other through me doing this podcast and just yeah because when i was looking through podcasts and stuff like that like just literature podcasts book podcasts i was trained in poetry mostly so you know i was always doing poetry and there's just nothing that was talking about this and I'm like this is like the biggest thing happening right now and everybody's pretending that it's not happening that there's this crazy uh or that it's good <laughs> that it's like that we're like destroying Hemingway's legacy and like everything he gave to the world like even that great scene that Valerie brought up yeah and that in that Burns documentary if you haven't watched that listeners go watch it I think it's free it should be on a few different streamers it's PBS right it should be free I think their archive is not free. Yet. Oh, oh, okay, right, 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 yeah. Right, well, I always like to start this with just, how did it read for you? Initial thoughts? Reflect- this isn't the first time you've read it, right? Yeah, it's the second time I've read it. I think that the first time I read it, I was surprised how little the war was in it, but then reading it again, because I had felt that the first time, this time I was like, oh, actually, there is a lot of war in it, so... It just kind of depends on what you go into it looking for, I guess. <clears throat> I thought there was there's a lot of just really powerful passages. I was thinking that too when I was like reading through, and I, this is the first time I've actually read the whole thing. 
Um, and so like I was coming to it only from reputation, you know, like this book has a huge reputation. It's been immortalized in the canon and Western literature. And, and this is something you get, most people get assigned in high school, although Valerie and I will get into this later in the episode listeners that not so much anymore, <laughs> but it used to be required reading for most people going through like a basic school uh, schooling. And yeah, like just like Valerie said, there is so much to take from it. And, and, it, and it, it's kind of deceiving on first read because it is so simple with Hemingway's prose, very simple, very matter of fact, and yeah, you, you, it's written as a war book. And I have a question about this. Maybe I'll just move to this question now. Like, um, you know, what would you call this? Would you call this a war book? Like a love story? Um, you know, what's the kind of the heart of this novel? Cause it, it is kind of both. Like there's the war, there's the love story, there's the tragedy, like the Shakespearean level tragedy at the end. And I mean, you know, I'm not thinking we're going to have a definitive answer or anything, but yeah, your thoughts what would you say? So there's, it's divided into five books. And I think of the five books, I think only two really feature the war. Yes. So that's an interesting way to think about it. Like the first and the, the third is when he's um, in the retreat. Yeah. I think, I mean, by number of pages, it might be different because so not all the, the third book, I think, is definitely the longest, but. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it definitely, like, the, in the last two are all focused on the, the love story. He kind of blends it. Like, well, it's this one weird. Thing that I... No, go on. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're right. One thing that I found surprising, I think, especially on this second read, is how much humor is in the book. Because I think there's definitely a stereotype about Hemingway about him being some kind of, like, uptight, stodgy, or, <laughs> like, very serious, ultra-masculine um, kind of guy. Like, in, in The Midnight in Paris, the Hemingway character is just, like, totally, like, blank face and serious. But there's a lot of very funny scenes in this book, and I think they really served to um, undermine some of the, the tragic aspects also. If you give me a second, there's a... Yeah, please, yeah, take your time. Passages. In chapter 25, that's the chapter where, where the character of Rinaldi, who's Hemingway's best friend in the... I'm sorry, who's Frederick Henry's best friend in the war, he has a breakdown at the end of the chapter and... People are like, some people are like, oh, maybe you should go on leave. And he gets really offended that they're even implying that he might be cracking up. But earlier in that chapter is very funny conversation between Frederick Henry and Rinaldi. And Rinaldi is sort of ribbing Frederick Henry about his relationship. And he says, I'll never say a dirty thing about her. And Frederick Henry says, don't strain yourself. <laughs> There's a passage. And the priest is there too, right? Like the, the... Yeah, the priest is the one who suggests, oh, maybe you should go on leave. You're not, you know, you're cracking up. Oh, yeah, and another, another passage. Is it all right if I read a Yeah, passage? yeah, please, please. Yeah, please. We love yeah, it on this, this podcast. I think this is, for me, yeah. one of the most powerful passages 
of the book and it ends with this line of block humor, which I think just kind of makes the whole thing that much more powerful. So this is towards the end of the book when he and his lover, Catherine, have made it to Switzerland for her to give birth to the baby. He says, often a man wishes to be alone and a girl wishes to be alone too. And if they love each other, they are jealous of each other in that. But I can truly say we never felt that. We could feel alone when we were together, alone against the others. It has only happened to me once like that. I have been alone when I was with many girls and that this is the way you can be most lonely. But we were never lonely and never afraid when we were together. I know that the night is not the same as the day that all things are different, that the things of the night cannot be explained in the day because they do not then exist. And the night can be a dreadful time for lonely people once their loneliness has started. But with Catherine, there was almost no difference in the night except that it was an even better time. If people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So of course it kills them. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. But those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good, and the very gentle, and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. My God. Hemingway. <laughs> yeah. Oof. And I remember reading that section too. And that's like the, yeah, it hits you. Cause like you're reading like the first couple books and there isn't so much tragic stuff till he gets kind of injured and, and all that. And then you get those last couple books in this and that tragedy starts to strike like so deep that, and the war is like a backdrop almost. You said the war isn't even the main thing. It's just that backdrop of that tragedy, uh, and then the romantic relationship and then yeah the kind of and that's kind of towards the end too right where they they kind of they've been through the hell of it and then there's still more hell to get through even and it's almost like an acceptance yeah i don't know i mean that is fantastic <laughs> fantastic at the very least yeah that's oof so powerful and I think that's like kind of the, the beauty of, of Hemingway, too, is that he's able to make you feel these in the most simplest way. And I know this used to be what he was over like praised for all the time. Now people shit on him for it and kind of, oh, it's too simple. It's too stripped back. It's it's not enough up front. It's too understated. You know, this is more contemporary criticisms that you'll see of it. But then, you you know, Valerie reads a passage like that, listeners, and you see just how could you ever say anything <laughs> bad about a passage like that? And it's dark. It's dark. Would you say there's a little bit of hopefulness in it, even though it's so bleak or if you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of heavy board to get complete uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast. 
become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right, Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. I wouldn't say so because this is sort of like, I think the reader doesn't know yet that Catherine is going to die shortly. And he's basically saying, looking back, this was the only time he ever obtained this perfect love where he never felt alone anymore. And it's also foreshadowing her death because she was so great. She had to die quickly yeah and i want to touch on the foreshadowing too that there's a couple of different moments like even from the very first book where we're starting to get foreshadowing for this kind of tragic ending i was thinking like um you know chapter chapter seven in my version i have listeners the um the hemingway library edition which is like a very famous one that you'll find all over amazon and stuff. i guess we didn't even talk about that yet but uh what version did you read valerie for the uh for the book nerds out there I have a Scribner paperback. Okay, nice. Nice. And, uh, yeah, sorry, listeners, I've skipped over this part right before at the beginning there. We were getting too excited to get right into it. Originally published in 1929 by Scribners and Sons, um, and this version that we have that I read has, uh, basically it's like the kind of, I, I don't want to say it's like a Norton uh, critical edition, but it, it's it's kind of just for, like, literature lovers where they have you know Hemingway's alternative endings and early drafts and, and a lot of the stuff from the archives so it's a good a good addition to have on your shelf if you're looking to pick it up obviously we'll link it in the description below uh and this edition was first put out in 1957 so you know like 20 years after the original publication but it was already a huge hit and success by that point and went down in history you know made Hemingway's name essentially uh Sorry, I didn't mean to get distracted on that. But uh, the the foreshadowing, yeah. So I was thinking like the foreshadowing, like where we have right on this on page 31 in this chapter 7. Where we have the first kind of thing where he's talking to us, he's telling us, and he he kind of foreshadows that he's not going to die in this war, right? We get kind of the character's confidence from Frederick um, and just kind of this, this strange reasoning for it too, but just this kind of... It's a very long paragraph, but just this one section of it where he's talking about, um, yes, even in the ambulance business, British ambulance drivers were killed sometimes. Well, I knew I would not be killed. Not in this war. I did not have anything to do with me. It did not have anything to do with me. It seemed no more dangerous to me myself than war in the movies. And it was kind of this interesting because it does take on a different attitude towards the end, but it does foreshadow the fact, oh, I'm not going to die in this war, but everybody else he cares about does, <laughs> you know, like it's, it, it, and I mean, obviously that's a literary device. We expect to see that in a lot of plays, but just even that with like same chapter in chapter seven there, where we start to get introduced to Catherine and we first see like his reluctant love for her, you know, it's kind of. I don't want to say it's cold, 
but it is kind of realistic when he's he's meeting this girl she's a war nurse you know he's an ambulance driver in the war and usually historically everybody knows those probably won't work out you know who knows but like he starts to fall for her and he won't admit it to himself for a while um mm-hmm. But, you know, he does notice in that chapter seven there, I, I marked it, yeah, page 35, where he he starts to feel empty when he's not around her. The very last paragraph of chapter seven, yeah, I went out the door and suddenly I felt lonely and empty. I had treated seeing Catherine very lightly. I had gotten somewhat drunk and had nearly forgotten to come. But when I could, but when I could not see her there, I was feeling lonely and hollow. That's very like the end of the chapter. It's like the first very subtle hint that he's falling in love mm-hmm. with this woman. And then I think it's like chapter 14 or something where he actually admits that he loves her. Because even before then, he's saying that he's like lying when he's like, oh, I love you too. I lied. Or, yeah. <laughs> Cause it's like, it seems cold, but I think it's also realistic where like you don't, you, you don't know how these relationships start, you know, and, and, um, I think, yeah, like with my wife and stuff, it's always unexpected, right? Like you meet somebody, you're talking, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden there's this, this, this moment where it's just, oh, wow. Like without you, you know, life feels so empty, <laughs> so lonely. And I didn't even realize it until after several years or, you know, whatever it is, several months, you know, just, I don't know. I mean, I guess would you call it, I guess it's a realism of some type or I don't know. Yeah, I had, I had a question about your interpretation of the plot itself. When do you think they first had sex? Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I guess the hospital? That's what I thought. But I watched both the movie versions, and they put it way earlier. Yeah. Um. I watched the the 1932 movie. I wouldn't recommend it. I thought it was kind of cheesy, but it was pre-code, right? Pre-haze code, so they had less censorship, and it was a very racy movie in terms of just the dot the dialogue. They didn't show anything, but right. And in the I think the first scene of that movie. A nurse is being dismissed from for getting pregnant. So they're trying to foreshadow that. And then she and Catherine and Frederick Henry sleep together on their first meeting. And then she's laying in the dormitory with the other nurses at night. And they're like, how could you do that? You hardly knew him. It's not like you two were in love. And I think these, I think both the movies were taking that from the play. I don't not familiar with, but me neither. Yeah. But in in the novel, he does say when she's giving birth that this was the product of good times in Milan, which implies that they first slept together in the hospital. Right. And it is, I guess, because this was published like 1929. Like, yeah, like you couldn't put like not not even pornographic but just like any type of description of of sex or or love making or anything like that like now you know that's changed in you know post 1950s there was all kinds of raunchy stuff in novels but before that <laughs> you really couldn't uh they wouldn't let you in the publisher 
Well, one, one interesting historical fact about this novel, it was originally published in Scribner's magazine and it was quite controversial. It was actually banned from newsstands in Boston because it was pornographic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's... Wow. I didn't look into any of that, but thank you for... for... <laughs> that is... Because that is... Wow. This was banned from newsstands. Mm -hmm. You don't see that in the banned book posts all over the place. Yeah. Banned in Boston. Yeah. That's... Mm -hmm. It seems so, like, banned from being sold at newsstands, too. I guess it does seem like another world uh, when no, newsstands don't even exist anymore. Yeah. God. And, and I guess we've talked about this sometimes on the podcast where there's um, the books that do get this kind of reputation or banned for whatever reason by either the federal government or a local government or whatever it is were they, you know, actually banned too, you know, these, these people pretending that books are banned nowadays in the 21st century in the West. Well, not really, uh, <laughs> but sure. And, uh, it's just, that adds something to it. It adds a curiosity. It makes people want to read it even more when they know that, oh, there's mm -hmm. something in it that they don't want me to see. And we don't talk about it as much with a book like this, but yeah, you would think, I'm sure it was happening all the time. And you think back to those, just, you know, I love Edith Wharton. I'm going through a kick right now. So I've been reading a lot of her stuff. And she talks about some of the letters she would get for just the stuff she wrote. Like they would be like taking her, like a random fan writing her a letter about, oh, have you, haven't you ever met like a normal person? Like all the women you write are awful. But, you know, like ta taking her to task for, for not being more pleasant or something in like the fiction. And it just, I don't know. I mean, like the level of that now, it just doesn't seem anywhere close to what, yeah, writers like Hemingway and Wharton and all these modernists were dealing, dealing with in terms of these petty little bands, these kind of always restricting. Yeah, sorry, go on. It, it was also very controversial for its portrayal of war. Uh, people considered it to be anti-war. And many people cancel their subscriptions to Scribner's because because they thought it was too pacifist. <laughs> oh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, don't they? <laughs> I'm not subscribing to your shit anymore because, <laughs> because of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of so course. Do, 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 would you consider this an anti-war novel? Yeah. I think I would. Yeah, I, I, I thought about that a lot. And I was thinking about this in terms of I read Vonnegut. I read a few things recently and I was talking to some other guests and I was starting to think about, you know, because something like Slaughterhouse-Five, I would say, is an anti-war book. But then it also is very practical about how, you know, war is terrible, but it's also inevitable. And I think there might be a little bit of that in this, too, where I think it's definitely anti-war, even just like the conversations between the soldiers, which is a lot of this book. Like just, and I guess even the ambulance drivers and the people that they were interacting with, and it just, there everybody hates it. Everyone's all oh, the war is terrible, you know. The like, God's oh, killing me, you know. Like this war is brutal, you know. Everybody hates it, and yet it keeps going on, right? Like, and yet it keeps happening over and over and over again throughout history. And there is this, I guess, at the time World War One, you know, it's hard to go back. We could only read about it, like Valerie was saying. 
and it's hard to realize, I guess, how big of a deal World War One and World War Two were. Like, like, so if you were writing something that was pacifist or, or, or anti-war in some way, people would think you were siding with, you know, the Germans or something, and in those, you know. And, and start accusing, I mean, just like now, right? Like if you say something that's like critiquing anything, you get accused of being some type of uh, German Nazi or whatever or part of that. It's so yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same here. What a but I mean, I, mean, I think yeah, when the U.S. was neutral from much of World War One until the very end, and I, I mean, the U.S. did not see the worst of it coming in so late and I think coming away because he went to Europe and saw the earlier phases of the war had a different perspective and I think what's most I think grit the gritty realism of war I think is mainly in the breakdown of military order in the retreat and I could see how that would be very jarring to people to see that portrayed that, you know, this, the military order doesn't remain intact and heroic and valiant while they're in a retreat and they're about to be overrun by the enemy. Right. And then you're talking about that scene where they're, they're killing the captains, right? They're killing the Italian uh, majors. And yeah, they're killing all the officers because they just, they're going crazy. They believe that any officer might be a German spy yeah, any officer that got separated from the regiment, they were saying, is suspected of German affiliations. And of course, there was no trial. There was no investigation. They were literally asking them questions and then shooting them, you know, in the back of the head, execution style. And that's a very horrific scene. Yeah, and then you see, like, you know, and I think that is a subtlety that people, you know, don't think about. And I'm glad you made that point, where it is the order is doesn't stay intact and how can it in a situation where there's all that chaos and violence and mortars going off and shells and people running back it's all i mean i guess i don't want to say mutiny because it wasn't quite that but it, it does become this free-for-all eventually because it's so disordered and i mean we still see it play out today right like all the horrific things that happen the war crimes are usually committed like when the order breaks down, when there isn't like a commanding officer in charge or they've mutinied against him or whatever it is. And all the rules and order break down. It just becomes like chaos and, and savagery and, and horrific, horrific shit. I, I, it is kind of sad, right? Like this is a sad book. And I was, I don't know. And I was reading through it here the first time I was, I was just, like you said, I was laughing at parts. There were beautiful little scenes, especially when he and Catherine are having a good time when he's on leave. I think that's like all of book two, right? It's basically him and Catherine falling in love and being on leave and not having any of the war bother them really. And then you go back into it. You know, I've been reading a lot of world war one books recently too. And it is kind of, Everyone talks about World War Two and World War One kind of gets forgotten with how kind of bloody it was and, and tragic and the no man's land and stalemates everywhere. No, like almost no territory got reassigned. And, and 
I don't want to say it's a lost work because obviously it's a huge deal and a huge thing in history and we get taught about it, but this emotional side of it, I feel like everybody's focused on the more recent thing, which was the World War II one and all the kind of postmodern writers that came out of the World War II and wrote their World War books, but these modernist writers all writing about World War One, man, was that brutal. Oh, man. How was... How is, when you were reading this through, like, how how was that for you? Like, some of these, like, more horrific scenes or, or even just more broader, like, like how, how do you feel about, like, reading horrific scenes in novels or graphic scenes or... One thing that I became aware of reading this a second time is that I... I do a lot of my reading on the subway, and I do think that makes it harder to get emotionally involved. You know, it's the time I have to read, but you know, when it's noisy, I and like I was definitely kind of noticing. You know, I think there was a lot that I missed the first time because I read it on the train, and this on this read. I was sort of noticing how much, what if if it was a quiet day, how much more emotionally impacted I was by what I was reading than if it was a noisy day on the train. Yeah. <laughs> that like the distractions, and I think this is like everyone talks about, and I think literacy rates and stuff have stuff to do with this. But like everybody talks about, oh, nobody's reading anymore, and it's like, yeah, they're not reading anymore because they're distracted. Like nobody can even mm-hmm. sit down. Like especially you look at some, like I look at my my nieces and nephews, I don't have any kids of my own, but like I have nieces and nephews that are around like school age kids and they, they're pretty active readers, although the one is not, you know, and you kind of look around and yeah, they have so much to distract them. And even like Valerie was saying, you can be somebody who's a big reader, gone to school for this, has always been a big reader uh, and writer. And even then, if you're in a noisy place or your, your phone's sitting by your lap or you're just, yeah, you know, like a public waiting room, like I do a lot of that too. Like when I'm waiting somewhere, I'm like the only freak that, you know, brings a, a book with me or something. If I know I have to sit in like a medical office or something or whatever it is, and you got to wait DMV, you know, wait for a few hours you weren't planning on. And uh, yeah, it does change how you interpret the things around you. If you're distracted, you're not getting that full impact. And just, and I mean, I'm not someone that like, of course, it, like I'm not someone that gets super choked up or super, um, uh, you know, offended or, or, or sick to my stomach from reading super graphic stuff. But then there is sometimes when it happens, you know, like sometimes that happens and that's being able to get somebody to feel that through just words is just, I'm always like, that is the art. That is the art form that we're all trying to practice here is like getting people to experience this regardless of everything around them. Uh, but it does take effort. I get it. Yeah. Like, so what you were saying, it does take concentration, a lot of effort, I guess. Yeah. For, for any lack of a better term there. I was thinking for me, his, when he escapes the, from being executed and even some of the scenes before that, when they're on the run in the retreat, I found it a bit over the top and unrealistic. I, I kind of feel like Hemingway in some ways is appealing to this male heroic fantasy, which is like when he he like jumps into this freezing cold river and people are shooting at him 
and he floats down the river on a piece of wood. I mean, I just found that kind of incredulous that he wouldn't just get hypothermia. <laughs> but I think that part of the reason why it has an impact on people is because it is appealing to this subconscious male fantasy. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. And that, and it, like Valerie said, it's something he gets hit with all the time. Like now, and you know, he's dead, whatever. But it's like he gets hit with that all the time is his appeal to this fan. You know, Snows of Kilimanjaro and a lot of his short stories were, uh, yeah, they're very masculine. He's a very masculine writer. Um, and and I think you're right. I think there are a few parts where it, it's really of trying to appeal to that kind of, I, it's weird for me because I know, I mean, it's hard to say because I was never alive at that time or even my grandparents, you know, were not alive during World War One. there. They were born after. But it's like, so I never got to talk to anybody that was there. But there, I wonder if it is almost like he's not a compensation, but there is this kind of male, I don't want to say fantasy, but like bravado of like they wish they could be this hero in these situations or escape mm -hmm. a situation like that. So yeah, you know, yeah, I think there is that to it. And especially, yeah, when he's jumping and riding the river current down a few miles and getting away Scott clean. Um, even them, I guess, escaping from Italy is a little unrealistic, especially with that umbrella, but you know, whatever, like that's, it's a novel, right? So you can forgive certain things, but yeah, I think that's apt, that that masculine kind of heroic... I mean, it's what he's known for, right? Like, And it might also say something about the difference in audience, that this was a massively popular book. It was in a popular magazine, and having those scenes are kind, is kind of maybe increasing the broader appeal, making it more of an adventure novel. Yeah. Yeah. That I think that's true too. Yeah. Especially those last two books where there's like the escape and like, you know, a kind of an adventure thing and you don't know if they're going to get out or not. And then they're coming to arrest them both, uh, you know, that morning. Yeah. Definitely. And, and, you know, sure, it's a novel. It's popular. If you're going to write a novel that sells a lot of copies, you got to give the audience, you know, you got to give them a little, a little action, a little romance, a little sex, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board that's right heavy board is made possible by subscribers like you for less than one cup of coffee per month you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes jerk shop heavy bonus content subscribers only ama episodes bonus extended interviews and more come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy board. I would say the reason why there's that kind of ridiculous fight scene at the end of Hamlet with the poison sword, because, you know, poison swords make sense. Right. I was like, Shakespeare's probably like, oh man, I wrote this play, it's almost four hours long. I haven't, have a, I haven't had a sword fight yet. 
Right. <laughs> Gotta find a place to put a sword fight before the end of the right. before the end of the play to keep the groundlings happy. Yeah, the the audience is gonna be throwing tomatoes or whatever if he didn't, you know, by that <laughs> point they would be like walking out, yelling, shouting, like, Where's all the violence? Yeah. Yeah. Are you a big Hamlet? Yeah, but like a lot of the canon was very popular when it when it came out. And that's why I think it 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 often tells us a lot about society of that time and what people are interested in. I'm so glad you made that point, Valerie. I'm so, cause yes, that's, I th- I'm agree a hundred percent with that, that, and I think this is where people like us that have been trained in this and, you know, excessive education and, in, in, in the canon and stuff, there was a time and it was not so long ago and it lasted for quite a bit where the best novels also equated to be the most popular in a lot of ways. That was more of a 20th century thing when we started to have this thing called pop fiction. And, you know, it was like purposely not trying to be any literary stuff at all. Uh, Or it was just, you know, adventure maybe. Because even the pulp stuff, I like the pulp stuff, um, you know, like in the early part of the 20th century. And even that has a lot of literary aspirations by the writers, even though they're not known as big literary writers, they, they still took it seriously and they put a lot of work into it. You could tell, you know, it's very clean when you're reading a lot of those guys and and a lot of those writers. And I think now we feel like that's not happening anymore, right? Like the, like the most popular movies or, or books or are no longer the best ones that come out each year. You know, like it's, there's a divide between what's actually the best art and then what makes and sells the most or is the most popular. I don't know that I would put it that way. I think for a long time, the novel was considered less serious than poetry. It's like when we think of like the great 19th century novels at the time, they were sort of considered lesser than the the poets that were writing at the same time. And I do think there was sort of a, this divide, you know, genre fiction became a term in the 20th century. And I think that now as sort of fewer people are reading, there's not really going to be an audience for that kind of kind of airport novel anymore right the people who used to read airport novels not just look at their phones so (laughs) yeah what what we have instead are i think these you know what they call upmarket you know where they try to blend some genre and some literary aspirations because at the end of the day the people who want to be readers still don't have the attention span that people had hundred years ago. Right. So they can't they can't really, you know, getting into some of the I think Hemingway is one of the more the more accessible modernists, but the other modernists much more difficult. Right. Yeah. To get into. Yeah. That's for um, sure. I think I think that's true. I think you're right. Yeah. And it's so hard, you know, I guess what one of the things that I always find fascinating and interesting is that like we you know, is it perception or is it, yeah, is there actually something that happened or is it just perception that we, you know, think that less people are, are literary minded, you know, because we are looking back, like the whole canon is looking backwards <laughs> with maybe even rose colored glasses in a lot of ways, you know, just romanticizing, oh, wouldn't it be great to, 
I don't know, like, oh, they were so successful. And then you look at, actually read some of their lives. They weren't that successful. You know, a lot of them were living in poverty besides the really wealthy ones that were born into like a state money, you know, and uh, like Hemingway himself, you know, like was full of poverty most of his life, even after the success of the books. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is difficult. You know, I do try to not let that cloud out my judgment or, or put too much weight on that yeah mm-hmm. and that's why i do try to be fair to people that would push back if we say oh there's actual hostility towards the canon um and people would say something like that as well it was never actually that you know popular or something it wasn't always like the most high-minded stuff but you know then it's like well that's disingenuous because we're talking about it in the high-minded way like and it's actually being hostile like pushed back on in this high-minded way and not that um I wanted to ask you about this scene here, and I think it's one of the more romantic aspects in uh, chapter 23, page 134 in my version. It was when he was talking about, um, is after the hospital, and it, it, he and Catherine had a chance to get me see each other again, but it was when he was talking about, like, kind of, you know, they felt like the hotel room was their home, and they felt like the hospital room was their home. And I'll read this short paragraph here, and then I want to ask you about it, where we... Uh, After we had eaten, we felt fine, and then after, we felt very happy, and in a little time the room felt like our own home. My room at the hospital had been our own home, and this room was our home too, in the same way. And what I was struck by with this was this kind of, yeah, what do we think about this? This kind of making a home in these unusual places. And it, because it, it, it does kind of broaden out that term home, you know, like where you have your partner or, and all that with you, and then you can make a home anywhere almost. But it's just, what did you think about that? I think in this novel, neither one of them has a real home because they're both foreigners in this war that has nothing to do with them. I mean, the British were in the war, but not on this front, and the Americans were not in the war at all. So neither one of them really has any connection to this place or what's going on around them except for the love they have for each other yeah and i thought about this it made me think of personally at least when i was reading that section i lived in a few different places and all the weird places like the the extreme moves that i've done where i lived moved to a different climate different culture basically still in the u.s but I, i grew up in baltimore and I moved to Louisiana for grad school, and now I live in Vegas out here in the desert, you know, and my wife came with me for both of those moves. Um, and I just remember thinking, like, there was a point, I remember very distinctly, after a few months of being in either of those places, like a new place where you don't know anybody, you don't, you know, you need to use fucking GPS just to get to Walmart or something, you know, because you don't know the roads yet. And then after a couple months or so, as long as you have that partner, you know, your spouse or the person you love or whatever it is, your kids, as long as you have that and like kind of a roof, you can make that home. You know, like a home is that kind of what's the cliche home is where you make it right. Like it really is like this is our home. This is where we live. This is where everything we love is like. And I was just really taken by that passage, kind of like making a home literally in the middle of a war where all this chaos around you and as long as you have this person you love and you're committed and blah, blah, blah. And it just, you can make it feel welcoming and loving, like those homey feelings that everybody craves in life, you know? And I was just struck by it. I was like, man, you know, 
given all the violence in this novel, all the kind of, you know, tragedy, and then that is still the thing. You know, that's what maybe that's what makes it so tragic towards the end there, which I want to get to with you with you. But yeah, like this. I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Or am I just, you know, talking crazy <laughs> or whatever it is? Yeah. I just, yeah, that hit me for some reason. Maybe it's just where I am. Maybe it's just, I don't know. I don't know. And then, like, reading this, too, I got, like, weird, this for the poetry nerds, or when I was suddenly got, like, when I was, like, halfway through this novel, I suddenly got Sabrina Ora Mark Simsom uh, vibes for her poetry collection. That's a deep cut, listeners. But uh, if you haven't read that book and you like poetry, read it. I, I didn't realize it at first because I had read her poetry book so long ago. And then reading Hemingway now, it's almost like I did it in reverse where I got to see the inspiration and like the influence come into this poetry collection that I was like, oh, this is very Hemingway all of a sudden. And I never had that happen. But And I want to ask, like, do you say this story is very simple? Would you say it's like an overall kind of simple plot for this story or a boy meets girl or, you know? I think most of the most powerful stories are pretty simple i mean it's love and war i think two two very big human experiences right although i think we are very disconnected from the reality of war in this country because we really haven't experienced it in a long time yeah and we have you know we have this sort of underclass who participate in the military and all of us eggheads don't even beat those people you know it's yeah very... yeah i think that's apt and i hadn't thought about that either where especially you see all the discourse that goes on all the time and there's always a war going on somewhere in the world like and now that we have social media we can see live streams of it you know 24 hours a day and everybody has a take on it all the americans have something to say you know we have the most powerful military in the history of the world. We have dominated the world longer than like almost any other like kind of thing. And yet we're so removed. Like, and I think that's why people could say stuff like, Oh, Hemingway sucks or, you know, like just flippant things or Shakespeare sucks or, or things like that because they don't understand that. Like, and I mean, I remember stories from my grandparents even that, and they were not old enough for world war one, but world war two and stuff where they lived through that in America here, the rationing, the, uh, you know, just the news coming in every day of people dying, like just unbelievable stuff that we've never had to really deal with at that scale since. And so we have entire generations removed, you know, the baby boomers included, uh, which are kind of the oldest generation now, but, yeah that's do you think it'll always be that way or is it just the luxury of having you know a nice affluent society wealthy you know everybody's relatively wealthy here <laughs> i have no idea what's going to happen with the world in the future i think there's going to be some very big changes in society for all sorts of reasons that we cannot predict you know imagine if you were you know, somebody in eighteen fifteen, would you expect what the world was in nineteen fifteen? You right. know, the World War One and the amount of industrialization they had by then. 
and beginning of radio and motion pictures. And right. We really can't predict what's going to happen. Man, that is... It, when you think about it on large scale, it is kind of hard to, to even fathom, yeah, taking somebody from 100 years ago and plopping them down, what would they think? Would they be hor- you know, <laughs> They would be terrified of the technology alone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I guess the fact that, you know, they, they are, Frederick Henry and Catherine are having a baby in this book they're having a baby in the midst of all this uncertainty in the war and so yeah I guess I that's something that I've certainly been feeling being pregnant is like I have no idea where society is heading right and all I do is like that I hope that I raise her to be resilient and you know can can adapt to whatever comes whatever is coming yeah yeah I mean that too and as i get older i've been thinking more about my wife and i are reaching that point where we're like oh, let's going to try to have children and and when thinking about that more and more it starts to really plague on your mind a little. and you know if you let it get too out of control whatever but i think it is realistic to have concern and uh yeah for listeners that don't know valerie is kind enough to do this while she is uh seven months pregnant uh carrying around a future generation here uh so yeah, I, this brings to the ending where I wanted to ask, you know, because reading it for me, it was tragic. But then I was like, when I got to that point, I was like, oh, wow. Like when you're you're actually going through it too, like did the ending really hit harder because you were pregnant or or about to have a child of your own? And Well, I was reading that, that scene where, where the, the doctor is assuring Frederick Henry that there's no risk for a cesarean section and I said to my husband I would not have a cesarean in 1918 <laughs> today I mean I would prefer to avoid it but right. I think I'll be fine today yeah. <laughs> one thing that I thought was very ridiculous is maybe you missed this she says the doctor tells her to drink more beer <laughs> Because it, it will lower the baby's birth weight, which it will. I mean, they weren't wrong. Fetal alcohol syndrome, from, like prescribed fetal alcohol syndrome from the doctor. Yeah. She drinks a lot throughout her pregnancy. Right, and smokes, I'm sure. I remember my, my, my grandmother. I don't, think, I don't remember know. smoking, but yeah. My grandmother smoked through... I mean, all her pregnancies. I don't know if she was, I'm sure she was drinking too. Yeah. I mean, just 40s, 50s. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. They did know, it, they did know it was bad. It's actually. Yeah. I mean. I mean, they, they, they did, they did know. Maybe Hemingway didn't know. Maybe it wasn't. Everybody didn't know. Generally, I think at least there's a time period when women were told to avoid hard liquor, but not beer and wine. Although I think she's drinking both in this novel. Yeah. And there wasn't that it is weird because yeah, we know, we know now and then culturally that's, that's a big taboo, right? So if you, 
you know, there's scenes in movies now where people show like, yeah, whenever somebody sees a pregnant woman smoking or drinking or something, there's like horror, everybody around them's like, oh my God, you know, but then, then <laughs> 1918, I mean, these people, nobody was thinking that at all. So you could just go into a bar like pregnant, nobody would bat an eye, <laughs> like nobody would be like, you sure you want to be here? Like, yeah. I thought too. I mean, I was the like, doctors even know that it's gonna cause a little birth weight. They just think that's a good thing. Right. Like, well, you're you have narrow hips, so it's better if you uh, drink to keep the baby small. Oof, God, yeah. And I was thinking that too. Like, it, it was such a tragic. I guess having complications in childbirth at that time was much more common than it is now too. Uh, I mean, this is before. It's just as common. We just have better medical care. Right. Human birth is pretty risky. I've been thinking about that a lot and thinking, you know, just like human anatomy creates these risks because of our unique evolutionary history. And a lot of other animals don't have as many risks as we do with pregnancy and childbirth. That's very interesting. So we are, we're very we're very lucky that we have modern medical attention. Yeah, I, I'd never considered that either. That's incredibly interesting. Yeah. We have small, we only give one at a time, unless you, you, know, you have twins or whatever. So other mammals can do more than one at a time. And then you said, yeah, we have more complications, more things that can go wrong, maybe because we're more sophisticated technically or just higher evolved and well, there's more parts. It's I've... because of our the big, our large brains, oh. big part of it. And the, uh, it's also because we're bipedal. We're the only truly bipedal mammal. You know, like other apes, they kind of walk on their knuckles. So right. they, they have hands, but they, don't, they use them for walking as well. So that certainly like, causes a lot of problems with like back pain and abdominal injuries during pregnancy and um, yeah, the, because the brain is so big, it has a hard time fitting through the pelvis. And human infants probably would be in the womb longer because they come out pretty relatively undeveloped, you know. A horse can run within an hour of being birth. A human, it takes 18 months for them to walk. Right. <laughs> right. Well, so, and it, I think it really uh, emphasizes how humans really need communities in order to have children. Like, right. You couldn't raise this helpless creature for so long without support. Yeah, yeah, that too. And I mean, not to get so much into the kind of large cultural things, but yeah, the you know the the the, the there is this sense of community doesn't matter or family doesn't matter right now, and it's you know nothing there's probably no better way to rid yourself of those beliefs than to, yeah, be expecting a child, <laughs> you know, like to be like expecting a kid into this world and be like, I need help. Like I need help from my grand, you know, my parents, grandparents, you know, brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, friends, you know, like we need, uh, like I need help. Like, yeah. And I, maybe that affected too. And I, maybe that we'll, we'll transition to something um, 
we'll transition to this here in a minute with the uh, the, the, the more MFA writing style and we'll get into cultural stuff. But yeah, that is, I don't know. Cause I mean, I used to think it too. Like I would be, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, oh, that's an old belief. You know, it takes a village, uh, you know, and even not just child rearing, but just community in general, you know, like like-minded people, like-minded, uh, you know, rituals, studies, whatever it is, like, it's just so important. Like, like you can't even function. Like, like you said, the order of war, like the order of just life, society, like if you don't have these kind of bonds, even if they're just through, you know, patriotism's become a bad word in a lot of ways too, where like, yeah, just a country, a shared vision of principles and goals and things that we aspire to and, and everybody kind of participating in that like it it does so much <laughs> like it does so much to help us get through tough times good times you know uh but yeah it's incredibly interesting that you brought that up yeah very interesting uh i think we'll we'll transition here into the next part of it um any final thoughts on uh we'll, we'll take a break if you need to too in between this here then we've been chatting for like an hour let me check my notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any final thoughts on this bad boy? On Hemingway, at you know the writer himself, the figure, the novel itself. Uh, anything we didn't mention? Yeah, go for it. Like I said anything's fair game. Whatever you want to bring up, if it made you think of some random thing, go for it. I I was looking a little bit into Hemingway's life as well. Awesome. Yeah. And. One thing that you can look at sort of his production as a writer by decade. He wrote six books in the 1920s, five in the 1930s, one in the 1940s. Plus he covered World War II for a year. So that's pretty involved. Right. Two books in the 1950s. The last one being 1952. He died in 1961. So sort of as he, he had this very productive period in the 20s and 30s, and then he really hit, hit a block and he was, and his health was in decline. I think he was, he was in two airplane accidents within like a week of each other. (laughs) Very Hemingway, yeah. And then his, his, alcoholism got worse because he was drinking to compensate for the as a self-medicating for the pain and he was having mental health problems and they didn't really have good mental health care they gave him you know random pills that probably affected him in different ways yeah yeah and that's always interesting too yeah you see the production and you could it's a good metric i think to see where he was mentally health wise or and that affects the artistic output and i always say i mean valerie's a writer like she knows listeners that there's this you know when you're trying to do something creative it is a lot of work it takes a lot of work a lot of effort it takes something out of you and there's like almost recovery when you finish like you you know, I'm mm-hmm. not going to compare it to sports or something where, yeah, you know, you're really sore and can barely move, but it is, there's a mental toll and even a physical to some extent where you're just kind of <clears throat> trying to recover from putting all that work in. 
and, and I mean, I see it rarely talked about, but it is a lot of work to to do anything creative and, and finish it, but then to do something on the level of a farewell to arms, you know, like he says famously, he rewrote the ending to this book 29 times or something, like just over and over again till it felt right. And when you read that ending, you're like, yeah, it had to be. Like, it had to be to get it to that tragedy, that that all is lost, like this kind of hopeless... Yeah, I mean, how do you make that without being corny? I mean, well, you rewrite it 29 times. People are like, oh, well, how long does that take? It takes months to rewrite a chapter 29 times, okay? Like, it takes months of life, of work, of... Yeah. One of his early novels he wrote in six weeks i don't know if it was this one or the sun also rises Oof. the sun also rises but yes i mean a lot of times people find it easier to write in a very condensed period of time but then when you're finished you're like exhausted you know right. you're totally beat i know murakami when he writes, he like gets up at 5 a.m. and writes for several hours and he every day doesn't like do anything else. But then he must have periods when he takes a break between books because I don't know how you could do that indefinitely. Yeah, burnout's real. It's very real too. Yeah. Like you, you see this with a lot of writers as they reach old age, if they've had long careers, which is a very rare to have long careers in a field like this. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you see, like, I, I've read some interesting stuff with him, too, um, where, where you're, he talks about exercise, like having regular kind of routines and exercise helps him not burn out from from mm -hmm. writing those those massive amounts of pages every day and thing, you know that's it's 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 just like training or working out for a sport or anything like that listeners you have to train your brain your hands your eyes everything to be able to write for long periods of time because most people you sit down you're inspired 30 40 minutes and then you feel really kind of drained after that so how do you keep that up for three hours at a time like a stephen king or somebody well you have to train yourself into it it's almost like running a marathon like training for a marathon where you just have to increase a little bit little bit at a time until you're able to do an hour or three hour block of intense creative output that's it's incredible i mean i don't know how anybody can disrespect it like <laughs> like it's incredible to be like it's so much work but, yeah i think that's kind of why being a writer, I, it's almost like a little thankless in a way. Like, you can be an amateur painter and you can put your painting on the wall and everyone who visits your house can say, oh, that's a nice painting. It doesn't matter that you didn't sell it for a million dollars. You can still share it with people. But with writing, unless you are getting a publishing deal, which is not, which has more to do with marketability, than anything you know you, it's hardly hard to share your work with people because because it, it's it asks a lot of people you know right reading also takes a lot out of people like we were saying you know it's hard we have a lot of distractions reading involves more reading requires more of the audience than any other art form absolutely 
if you're an amateur musician, you can bring out your guitar at parties and you can entertain people and have a nice, everyone has a nice experience. But if you're an amateur writer, even if you're quite good, just not marketable, it's hard to, hard to share that in a meaningful way. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And then that, that meme comes to mind, you know, I'm not reading all that, right? Like, <laughs> I'm happy for you or sorry that happened though, right? Like people don't even want to read a long text message. <laughs> like, give them a short story. They don't even want to read that, let alone a novel. But like, we'll read this. What do you think? That's true too. I want to get to that. We get, yeah, the workshop stuff where yeah. like you, you can barely even get friends to read some of this. <laughs> you can barely get friends to, to take the time to read a, an amateur novel. They're more likely to listen to, yeah, like an amateur, like, you know, basement studio recording or something and then physically read it because it is, it requires something from the reader. Yeah. The audience has to participate and do more work, yeah, than a movie or, or TV show or. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on Hemingway before we transition or? I guess I had one last note about his legacy, I guess. Yeah. It's, this is one of my father-in-law's favorite novels, and he said that it inspired him to become pacifist. He was actually very involved in nonviolent resistance during the civil rights movement. Um, and he said, you know, it, he, he said that not only does it portray the gritty reality of war, but it also captures the sort of seduction of wanting to become a war hero and yeah so that was, that was just my final note that i had absolutely and i think that speaks to the power of books like this where people mm -hmm. want to write off books oh it's books who cares and i think that's why they, they try to censor them now too which we'll get to in the second half here listeners uh because they are there's some power to them they can change your perspective in a way they can change your ideas they can they can affect you in a way that makes you reevaluate everything you previously thought because you saw a new experience, a new way to look at this that you didn't previously. And yeah, that's, that's honestly a beautiful way to end it. Right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, you have stuff, drop your handles for people here in this episode where you have your own blog and stuff that you're working on, right? How do people find that? Oh, ValerieLute.com. ValerieLute.com, and your handle is your at ValerieLute on. I think it's Loot Valerie. Okay. Check it out, listeners. Go there. Loot Valerie at Twitter, and then ValerieLute.com to get the blog, all those goodies up there. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored.
such a lack of gratitude for life. Bored. I, I aspire to bored, I should say. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy. Bored. Has your night sweats and the day sweats, pal? Pal, I do.